returning to uh, the Beatitudes this morning, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What am I supposed to do with a statement like this? You know, Jesus does not avoid the painful subjects. He does not sidestep misery. He does not whitewash grief with cliches. Some Bible teachers will take a passage like this and they'll twist logic to argue that bad is actually good. Bitter is actually sweet. Darkness is actually light. But grief that sucks the air out of your lungs is not good. No sane person would ask for poverty, for mourning, for persecution. And Jesus Christ is a sane person. He has had his share of wounded wounds. He has felt the sting of rejection, betrayal, hostility. He knows the difference between laughter and tears. But the things that he addresses here, these painful subjects, these are all the side effects, the unavoidable side effects of life. And so he dives into them. Now, grief is usually related to a loss of some kind. It can be a loss of property if your house burns down or is uh, plundered by thieves and you, you lose some of those irreplaceable photographs um, and other mementos or heirlooms, uh, that can cause grief. Uh, it could be a loss of a job, a job you really love, the one that was finally working for you, uh, the one that was the career you had prepared for. It could be the loss of, of a close relationship, a breakup. Of course, it can be the loss of death. Neuroscience research has uncovered the fact that our brains were designed for relationship and it has been seen in studies uh, of infants, it's been seen as early as one day old. That the, that the brain is already wired to connect and communicate um, concerns, empathy. Um, there's this responsiveness. There's this whole thing of the, the mirror neurons in different structures of the brain that enable one person to feel what another person is feeling. And we're born with this. Sue Johnson has said, losing that connection profoundly hurts. We know that the pain of rejection registers in the same part of the brain 
and is coated in the same way as physical pain. Do you, do you get that? I mean, have you been there to where your grief physically hurts? Here's how it works. If you love, you're going to grieve. If you love, you're going to suffer loss and sorrow. Now, if you don't want that pain, and naturally, we we don't go looking for pain. If you don't want that pain, you have very few choices. The first choice is refuse to love. Refuse to love anyone or anything. Don't open your heart to another person. Don't get close to another person. Don't care for another person. And don't have a pet. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm just saying, um, I know people, their, their pet was their companion. One time I mentioned something to my mom about her dog. And she said, shh. She doesn't know she's a dog. (laughs) (laughs) So So that's one option, is don't love. Another option is go ahead and love, but when the loss occurs, numb the pain. You can numb the pain with chemicals, legal and illegal, um, liquid and solid. Uh, I had a a Latin teacher in high school in the second year of Latin lost her son who was attending college in Arizona. Uh, It was the second child that she lost. And she went into a Valium haze that lasted the remainder of the school year because she simply could not cope with the pain. And I don't know if apart from that Valium, I would have even gotten a D in that class. (laughs) Another way to numb is by sheer willpower. You know that there are families, they're not allowed to talk about the member that died not allowed to mention their name, not allowed. In fact, right after the memorial service, the room is cleaned out, and every trace of that person is removed because someone doesn't want to hurt. Jesus does not allow us to avoid the painful subjects. In fact, here he reminds us of the most painful moment of our lives. Those who mourn. It's exactly the time when people will give up on God. They cannot fight the waves and hang on to faith at the same time. And so they let go of faith so they can keep their head above water. We understand that. Even if we have resisted that, even if if there's been a faith so full of God's grace that it held us, and even in the times when we were angry at God and, and, and cursed the day of our birth, that faith 
sustained us, and we take no credit for it. But we understand those who cannot hang on to their faith. So I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to Jesus, and I hear him say this, and, um, and I'm wondering, did he take a break from healing people to bring us up here and do this? To remind us of our pain, our loss, our, our grief? Did he open his mouth to teach, to, to deliver these blessings? And do we follow him up the mountain for this? And I won't say it out loud, but I'm thinking, I wish he would shut his mouth and go back to healing the sick. Because then we really see something happening. And, and, it, and instead of bringing up our pain, oh, we're, we're relieving it. We're resolving it. But when I say this, I am ignorant of the fact that there is as much healing in his words as there is in his touch. And if I can really hear Jesus, maybe I can have some of that healing for a wound that is still open and gnawing at my insides. Later on in the story of Jesus, a centurion, we'll get this, isn't that interesting? A Roman soldier gets this. And when Jesus says, I'll come to your home and heal your servant, he sends Jesus a message and says, don't bother. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. He understands the power of Jesus' word. And he knows there's healing in it. So, Jesus is healing with words. And brokenheartedness is the most common form of suffering. This soul sickness that Jesus himself describes in in his own mourning as a suffering of sorrow to the point of death. It weighs on him like that. We may never know why, but there's something healing in just hearing him say, blessed are those who mourn. Because it's him saying it. So maybe I should not get up and leave the mountain too soon. Maybe I should hang around a while to hear him out. I've learned a few things through mourning. I've learned that there's a depth to my soul that I would have never discovered had it not been for my grief. I did not know I could feel anything that deeply. There are lessons that only sorrow can teach us. I want to skip those classes, personally. I don't want to take those exams. Um, I don't don't need that kind of education, right? But we don't get, get a choice. 
there are lessons we learn only through suffering. Also, there's a quality of empathy we would not otherwise acquire. Without sadness of our own, we'd be a stranger to human emotions that rip people apart. We'd just stand there thinking, wow, they're acting strange. Or can't she stop wailing and crying? Or it's been three months. Why isn't she back to bowling night with us? And without our own sorrow, we'd never get it. I'd like to say blessed to those who have never known the grief of the loss of that person who's most important in your life. Because it hurts so bad. And yet those are the people who stand by scratching their heads and have nothing to say except lame platitudes. The school of experience is the only place where you learn this kind of empathy. And if you've traveled to the valley, well, you know it now. If, if you've traveled through it, if you've been in it for a while, if you can say, well, I don't know that I've come out on the other side, but the pain is not as horrible as it used to be. And there are lessons I'm learning through it now, and light is finally dawning for me. Well, you're naturally a guide to others who also come into that valley after you. And uh, I say naturally because it's not something you have to try to be. In fact, I've seen, I've seen two people suffering the same loss, and one of them tried to be helpful to others who experienced a similar loss and started way too soon and burned out way fast, and I don't know was of much use to anyone. The other person just sat in in his grief for a long time. But just his perseverance has been an encouragement to others. Your familiarity with the terrain will speak for itself. And sometimes just seeing you up and around and, and pushing on is enough to encourage someone who's following behind you. The beautiful traits that we see in Jesus are his empathy and compassion. That he could feel what others felt and, and would treat with compassion. I mean, even if his situation was not identical, we think, you know, how could Jesus, this holy man, ever relate to a woman who's thrown on the floor in front of him, who has just been caught committing adultery? Well, he's able to, isn't he? And he's able to say to her, where are your accusers? Is there no one left here to condemn you? She said, no one. He said, well, I'm not going to condemn you. Shortest verse in the Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. It was at the graveside of Lazarus. Oh, Jesus loved Lazarus. Uh, John chapter 11 begins with that statement. Love Lazarus. He loved Mary and Martha. And he comes to the graveside of Lazarus and Jesus wept. But it's not because of his sense of loss for Lazarus. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. 
He wasn't crying, oh, how can I ever live with Lazarus, my friend? This, this is so hard, it's impossible. What, why is Jesus weeping? It's, he's looking at the emotion of all the people around him, and they're weeping, and they're saying, couldn't this healer have done something to prevent this from happening? And he's like, oh, he's, he, I've, I've experienced that. In fact, my dad one time said to me, Chuck, it's, it's time you learn how to officiate a funeral. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, he's going to sit down and disciple me for three weeks. He said, put your suit on and come with me. And we went to a funeral. And then he said, okay, this is the paperwork they give you. Uh, um, and just watch me read this scripture when I ask you to. And so I'm nervous. You know, this is like a solo flight, you know, getting up there to read scripture when I've never even been in this before. And I think, okay, that went smoothly. And it did go smoothly until at the end, the husband of the deceased came to the front of the church to this open casket, and he's lost. He's lost. He is so lost. And he has no idea what to do. He rubs his forehead and cries. He touches her. There's no consolation in that cold, stiff hand. He grabs his forehead again. He cries more. He touches her. And I watch this going on for the longest time, and it's like he's, he's a statue now. He's not going to move. And I wonder if he'll ever let them close that casket. And I can't take it. And I'm wondering, Dad, how do you do this? How do you do more than one of these in a lifetime? It was their grief. I wasn't going to miss her. It wasn't my loss. But their loss got to me. That got to Jesus. He came to Jerusalem, the city, looks over it, and he starts crying. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You've done everything wrong. You've rejected God's message through his prophets. You've rejected his prophets. And if only you knew the shalom you could have today, this day when I come to you. But you'll reject me also. And in a short time, you're going to be decimated. It could be peace. Instead, it will be war. And it, it breaks his heart. And this is still off in the future sometime, but it breaks his heart. And you know, he invites us and he says, come here, come here, and, and I want you to look at the world with me, and I want you to weep with me. And you know, it's our own suffering that enables us to do that. To say, okay, I'll stand with you, Jesus, and I'll feel what you feel. Because I'll allow you to access, I'll allow the pain of others to access that in me. So if I'm watching a CNN report on refugees somewhere in the world or, or a, a bomb-shattered village and see women wailing for their lost children, something in me will respond the way Jesus responds. Because I've known sorrow. I won't watch adopt-a-pet commercials 
I draw the line there. We can hate our grief, but it's not healthy to be ashamed of it. We can hate the pain, but it's not healthy to allow guilt to attach itself to our grief. That will impede our progress with it. And many people are ashamed of their grief and they hide it. And many people allow guilt to insert itself into their grief. So they feel not only lost, but they feel like somehow it's their fault or if they were a better person. You'll hear people all the time say, I wish I had sent her flowers when she was still alive. Now, there's just a small measure of guilt in that. I'm recognizing I could have done more to show my love or whatever. But, But grief has a way of stirring up guilt. What did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? How could I have prevented this? And and then sorrow tends to make other people feel uncomfortable. And and people don't want to hang out too long with someone who is going through a sad period of their life. It's okay at the memorial service and it's okay a couple weeks after but when it's a year after, a friend of mine said a year after his, his son was killed in a car accident, he said, I still haven't gone into his room. I walk by the door and I see his little tennis shoe on the floor and I can't do it. If I did not have children of my own and grief of my own, I might not have understood that. It's been a year. And you're you're a big, manly guy. But I did understand it. People don't like to stay long around grief. Jesus stays as long as it takes. He rides it out with you. And he drains the guilt and the shame out of your grief. He purifies our experience of it. And that really helps. Coming back to this beatitude, I cannot think of any logic that justifies the statement, blessed are those who mourn. I don't imagine anyone walking through a cemetery, looking at a graveside service, and saying, oh, look how blessed they are. They're just weeping and, and, you know, pouring tears all over each other and falling apart. What a blessing. <laughs> I'm so blessed to be here and to see this. I mean, you have to be a really sick person. It's, I'm pretty sick to even think of that. Um, there's no straight path that leads from mourning to blessing. I can't find one. In fact, even his promise seems to fall short for they shall be comforted. Wouldn't it have been better to have never suffered than to suffer so greatly and then, oh, but now I'm getting comforted. I mean, comfort does not replace loss. And comfort doesn't completely remove grief. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's like saying, bang your head against the wall because it feels so good when you stop. 
nevertheless, Jesus is able to connect these two thoughts. So if logic doesn't get us there, we have to find another way. We have to find Jesus' way of moving from mourning to blessing. It occurs to me that Jesus is doing something here that he did frequently. And I would say my eyes were open to this. Just this, this weekend, looking at the text, I hadn't seen it before, but he, he's doing something that he did frequently. He came to reveal God's higher thoughts. You know, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. But the human intellect cannot get us to those transcendent truths, which is how, especially in our own times, the last four or five hundred years, how we've approached everything is through the intellect. Oh, can you, can you define that word for me? Can you help me understand rationally? And if you're asking Jesus, can you help me to understand rationally how this works? He says, nope. You're not going to get it that way. It's not going to come to you that way. That's really important for us to understand. So he does something for us to help us get it. Because our intellect tends to get in the way. In fact, Paul said, for the spirit of God, the the things of the spirit of God are foolishness to the natural mind. So Jesus would maneuver his way around the way people normally learned. You know, study the alphabet, study vocabulary, study, study your grammar. Okay, we may need to go into this a little bit deeper. Our brains constantly monitor and make adjustments to our joints, our bones, our muscle, in order to keep the body oriented to its environment. You have no idea what your brain's doing right now just to keep you balanced and sitting upright. Some of you do, because you're not enough. But um, (laughs) the brain is constantly orienting us so that we can maintain our posture. And um, and not just fall over. And our brains do something similar to our waking consciousness, to our, our alertness, to our thought life that's ongoing, Um, it observes and evaluates our surroundings, identifying objects and people and movement. It assesses all of these things. It makes associations. It it, um, draws from memory and whatever available resources the brain has. And eventually, the brain acquires words and labels for all of this because that's the, the handiest way to catalog it intellectually. The result is that the mind organizes information that makes sense of our world. And anything really confusing or overwhelming, the mind has to be with it for a while to make sense of it. It is in our biological nature. So I'm not 
I'm not rebuking you or criticizing you. It's in our biological nature to desire predictability and to be in control. Because it's our sense of control. and I know what's going on here. I, I get this. I understand this. That helps us to be comfortable in it. That helps us to move in it. To be a part of it. To participate and, and to be with it. As helpful as these functions of our brain are, and they mostly go on unconsciously, uh, as helpful as they are for finding our way around, they're limited in helping us navigate the kingdom of God. I say limited, I should say useless, because the kingdom of God is other than anything in our experience. And, and the only way Jesus can even talk about the kingdom of God is through analogy. The kingdom of heaven is like this, and it's like that. It isn't this, but it's like this. And he gives us something we do understand to help us process our way to that which transcends understanding. Many times, Jesus said something that frustrated rational minds. Many times, he said things that were literally meaningful but odd. Beware the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, that makes sense. The sentence makes sense. But when did the scribes and Pharisees start selling leaven on the street corner or in the marketplace? That makes no sense. But the disciples took him literally. You must be born again. And we can make sense of the words, but what the heck do they mean? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now, even the most mystical of us stumble over that. In fact, at that particular moment and with that particular statement, John says, from that time forward, many of his disciples left him and no longer walked with him. He was frustrating their rational minds because he wanted them to come to an understanding apart from the path of the intellect. The intellect would not get them there. The revelation had to come to them in some other manner. When they took him literally, and this happens a lot, Nicodemus took him literally. The disciples took him literally about the bread. Um, when they took him, the, pardon me, the Samaritan woman took him literally, literally about the water that he had to offer. When they took Jesus literally, then he said, no, no, that's not it. You're getting it all wrong. And that put them off balance. Oh, I thought I had it figured out. And it put them off balance enough that just maybe, just maybe, they might listen with a heart of faith instead of a mind of logic. Because the heart of faith, okay, Jesus, I don't know what you mean, but I trust you. So I'm going to continue to listen. And as I walk with you and I see it lived in you, as I see your connection with the Father, maybe it will come to me. To follow what he was saying, they were going to have to make a shift from thinking about his words to experiencing his words, from 
the literal rational associations they were tempted to make to perception and intuition, to intuit his meaning. From closed categories to openness to mystery. I'm just going to have to be with this mystery and its symbols until it comes to me. As the disciples progressed, I'm sure that they began to see the world in a different way. I mean, there's every evidence of that in the book of Acts. They, they saw it radiate with a new aliveness, with flashes of beauty they hadn't seen before, with all the things that, that the, the leaders of Christian spirituality and church history have talked about. And eventually, they were no longer afraid of sadness, no longer afraid of pain no longer afraid of death. They found that perfect peace in Jesus Christ. All of a sudden I realize the futility of what I'm doing because no matter what I say, I can't usher you through that door. I can't give you the three steps. I can't give you the logical outline. I can't give you the rational discourse. That won't help. It seems like that's what I'm doing. How are we going to get this? What are we going to make of blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted? Well, let's begin or, or move on ask, who is it that's saying this? Who's speaking these words? It makes a difference. If you meet a widow who has just lost her only son, and you walk up to her and say, don't cry. Well, I think she would be justified if she spit in your face. What do you mean, don't cry? My grandmother lost her husband and her youngest son in one stroke, a light airplane crash. And she had friends who said, oh, Maud, I understand. I lost a husband, too. And she told my mom that they didn't understand because I did not just lose a husband. I lost my youngest son at the same time. I mean... I don't think that you can say that doubles a person's grief because I don't think you can quantify that kind of pain. It, it, the, it, the, the grief is multiplied exponentially. So it makes a difference who says blessed are those who mourn because when it was his voice, the widow heard say don't cry, she stopped crying. She didn't know what he was going to do. She did not know what would come next or why she should stop crying. But there's something about the authority of Christ who walks always in the spirit of the Father, in the will of the Father, that when he says don't cry, you somehow know you can stop crying. He speaks with that kind of authority. So here Jesus is, he's bringing up these painful subjects But as he does, he reconfigures them. 
simply because it's him who's, who's talking about it. He creates a new context by inserting himself into our grief. That reconfigures it. Do we grieve? He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, said the prophet Isaiah. Jesus himself is the link between sorrow and blessing. However that works, it comes together in him. So I don't have to worry so much about how to tie it together rationally. I can just be in Jesus where it's resolved. At least I can start there until more light comes to me. When he reconfigures our painful experiences, he is both doctor and medicine. Jesus prescribes himself to us. Come unto me. We have a word for sadness that is beyond comforting, inconsolable. I thought of, of sharing several passages with you from Scripture. You know, the Scripture's got some great stuff to say about comfort. John the Baptist's ministry began a voice calling in the wilderness. But right before that, the quotation from Isaiah says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. The repetition is to give more force to the word comfort. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Um, 2 Corinthians. Well, I was going to do this. I was going to give you all these verses on comfort, but I'm not. Uh, I'm resisting the temptation. Instead, I want to read you something. And this, again, is Julian of Norwich. And um, this was in one of her encounters with Jesus. She says, Our Lord said to me, Thank you for working so hard and serving me with such dedication when you were young. These words transported me to paradise. At this point, God revealed to me three degrees of bliss that everyone who has ever served him in heaven, even in the smallest degree on earth, shall enjoy for all eternity. The first is that once we are delivered from the pain of this world, God will pour his loving gratitude on us. Are you kidding me? How my life would have changed had my parents read Julian of Norwich. Because I was taught to fear death because just on the other side of death was a horrible judgment of God. Where even if I was saved, I would be singed. That anything that I did that was not for God would be exposed to the universe and everyone in it. There would be appropriate action taken. And then it would be, okay, you pass Latin, you can come in here. <laughs> On the same merit. Or with the same grade. When I read this, it bowled me over. Because I, I know, I know that I've done one small thing for God. This week I got an email from a kid who used to be in my church and uh, he worked with the youth 
years ago, I don't know, more than 20 years ago, he moved up to Oregon, and he's been on a church staff up there working with youth ever since. He sent me this email this week, and I haven't heard from him in forever. And he said, Chuck, I, I want you to know that I've carried with me things that I've heard you say. And he mentioned a couple things. And then he said, but one thing that really grabbed me was you were in the book of Job, and you got to chapter 40, and you said, I forget how he worded it. He said, that I said something like, there's going to be a surprise in this chapter. And God is talking with Job, and God says to Job, will you condemn me to justify yourself? Is that, is that how this works, Job? You're going to condemn me to justify yourself? And I said, we cannot condemn God to justify ourselves. But he can. God can take the cross to bring us justification. He said, that word has been with me ever since. Well, our pastor asked me to throw together this, this little play for the church, taking all of the key passages, the key, pardon me, the key verses in Job's argument with his friends, and then wrap it all up at the end. And he said, so that's what I did. And then Job's final conversation with God, I ended with that. Job, will you contend me to justify yourself? You can't do that, but I can. And then he says, then the shawl that God is under, he removes. A crown of thorns is placed on him, and he holds out his hands. And he said, you could hear people going, oh. He told me of a woman who had just lost a daughter, an adult, an adult daughter, and who emailed him following that to tell him what it meant to him. So I said something that went into his heart and came out years later and created ripples in a place I've never been, among people I've never met. I still find it hard to think God's going to say, thank you, Chuck. I still find it hard to, to see him like running up to me and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because you have no idea whose life was touched. But it's this simple thing. It didn't cost me anything to say that. Okay, so maybe you're, you're getting it. Um, but the idea that God would thank us for loving him, for trusting him. You trust me. I know it was hard. I let it be hard for you. And you trusted me through it. Thank you. Can you hear that? Can you hear God say, thank you for, for walking with my son Jesus. Thank you for believing in him. Thank you for being his disciple. Well done. Well done. He does say that, you know, well done. And if Jesus' description of the prodigal father is anything like our heavenly father, then we can imagine him coming to us. First thing, we get to heaven saying, I just want to thank you. Jesus Christ, who stands between heaven and earth, life and death, love and loss, Jesus Christ is himself our comfort. And therefore, he is our blessing. Would you, would you stand with me, please? It's a warm day. You've been very patient. God bless you. Um, may the Lord bless us.
keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.